On September 16, 2015, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar titled Getting to Know, Examining How No Boston Olympics Won the Fight Over the 2024 Summer Games. Panelists included No Boston Olympics voluntary co-chairs Chris Dempsey, Liam Kerr, and Kelly Gossett, as well as journalists Garrett Quinn and Kyle Klaus from Boston Magazine. The discussion was moderated by Yora DeYoung, HKS Lecturer in Public Policy and the Academic Director of the Ash Center's Government Innovation Program. To learn more about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Thank you very much, uh, Dan. Welcome, everyone. My name is Yorty Young. I teach strategic management and public sector innovation here at the Kennedy School. It's uh, my privilege and pleasure to uh, host this conversation today with a remarkable group of people. I have to thank Dan Harsha first. He is our communications director, and usually he has, uh, he's really good at putting our work out and making sure that those stories get it, make it out in the world. But today he's brought a very remarkable story to us. And when, um, when he put together this event, uh, we got together and, and discussed, you know, what the implications are of what uh, the activists who were against the Boston Olympics uh, really did. And um, today we're going to talk about what they actually did, how they did it, how they pulled it off, uh, but also think a little bit beyond this particular, um, this particular uh, uh, strategy and see what the implications are for urban organizing and uh, mobilizing people uh, for any cause, really. And so uh, we are very happy to have here today the three musketeers uh, of No Boston Olympics. Uh, Chris uh, is right here, and he used to work at uh, Bain & Co. as a consultant. He got his MBA from Harvard, um, and before, before that he spent two, uh, more than two years with the Massachusetts Transportation Department. Uh, Next to him, Liam, who was the Massachusetts Director of Democrats for Education Reform. And then Kelly, uh, who, Kelly Gossett, who is a State House veteran and a Concord native, uh, who also worked in the nonprofit world and most recently as policy director of One Family, a Boston area organization focused on alleviating homelessness. There's much more to say about you guys uh, than that, but just to give a little bit of context, and of course today we're going to zoom in on your capacity as the, the three people behind the No Boston Olympics team. On my left-hand side, your right-hand side, we have two uh, reporters, editors from the uh, Boston Magazine uh, news team uh, who have followed the debate about No Boston Olympics closely, and we're going to ask them to reflect on what happened and how it happened and what the, um, the broader implications are. Now, personally, I'm conflicted today because I really like citizen engagement. I, I study it, you know, I research it, I read about it, I promote it, but I also really like Olympics, <laughs> right? So I don't know if I should thank you. <laughs> or hate you for not giving us the opportunity to have a Boston Olympics. Uh, so today we don't want to go too much into the pros and cons of having the Olympics in Boston, uh, because we've had that debate, and you guys won. Uh, so we're going to focus much more on the strategy part. But you know, of course, we have to start with um, the question, what have you done and why? 
Kelly. Ooh. <laughs> um, so, oh, that's pretty loud. Is that good? Um, what have we done and why? Meaning, what have we? Do- why did we do this? Why did you? Why were you so opposed to the Boston? Sure. Um, a little bit of background. Actually, I think you should do the founding story first. I think it's better. Sure. Um, so, you know, at the founding, you know, actually Chris's girlfriend lived a couple doors down and he was just walking by one day. It wasn't actually that, um, that much of happenstance, but it really was a lot of individual conversations with people about the Olympics, um, and about this concept that we knew at a very high level, uh, doesn't this end up pretty poorly usually for cities? We've seen the pictures of Greece and whatnot. Um, and it turned out not a lot of people really dug in to the structure of how the Olympics are awarded, what the different specific groups are, what all their individual incentives are. Uh, and Chris and I and a couple other people had had a lot of those in-depth conversations with people and started to really frame out exactly what the process would look like. Uh, so this was the fall of 2013. Um, and it really was a conversation on a couch, uh, just kind of sketching this out and saying, wow, no one is really well positioned or has incentive to lay out all the facts and frame up the public interest side of this story. There's no one that would naturally put out a forecast of what could happen or put out a reasoned argument on the other side. You know, what we were seeing on TV at the time when the idea was first floated was, uh, oh, there's going to be terrible traffic or, oh, it'd be awesome to have them. It wasn't really the reason conversation that Boston is known for that a lot of the people that we were talking to wanted to have. Uh, and so we kind of started to just put in motion um, that type of conversation. Um, Chris so probably has a lot to Is it true that you were not so much opposed to the Olympics as well as concerned about the process, uh, that, that the pros and cons weren't properly weighed? Really fast. Um, so when they had they had formed this in December of 2013, um, and I had serendipitously read an article about it that spring that it was a possibility of coming, um, and I just recently watched something about um, the World Cup and how it affects host communities, and just to kind of see, and I work in a field that has so many needs for so many other health and human service issues, and to know just from that perspective that there was going to be money, state money, going towards perhaps a stadium, um, that just that hit me really right in the heart. And so I'd connected to them. And from there, that's where I got involved um, in the work at that point. So it wasn't necessarily the process at that point. It was just the conversation. And at that time, it really wasn't that loud. It was not amplified to the level it's been the last six months, that's for sure. Chris? Oh, yeah, Mike. Um, so I think that uh, the, the point that Liam was getting to is really important. And it actually informed our strategy. There. I think there were civic institutions that should have stepped up and should have said, wait a minute, this is not a great idea. There are some real concerns here. But the challenge for those organizations, I won't name them, but you can kind of think of the fiscal watchdog organizations and some of the sort of centrist think tanks and and even think tanks on the right and on the left, um, were sort of conflicted out because they were either raising money from the people that were supporting the Olympics or they had crossover with their board appointments or just relationships with those organizations. And so we saw that those civic institutions were not going to be stepping up, and yet the media wanted to tell the story as a two-sided story. I think the media wants to portray a story kind of similar to the reaction they would get if they walked into a bar or a barber shop, 
And in Boston, that opinion was very much split. You know, people would come out on either side of that question of should we have the Olympics. And so the media wanted to be able to tell both sides. And we felt, given our backgrounds, that we had an opportunity to contribute to that debate and that we could, um, with, without a significant amount of effort in the early days, find some good information and put out some good information that was at least responsive so that as Boston 2024 was pushing a story about how this was only going to be benefits to the city and only be positive, we would be there to respond and say, well, wait a minute, actually, other cities have had really bad outcomes and there are some real holes in this plan. Um, so it was, a, it was a very responsive strategy uh, because we were under-resourced and because we were able to take advantage of the media. So th this all happened after the United States Olympic Committee had already picked Boston as the city for the global no, bid, no, right? No. You started before that? Yes. But the decision had been made. So, so we, we, we actually started, we, we came together in Liam's living room in November of 2013, more than a year before the USOC chose Boston. And uh, just talking about this today, I mean, in, in January, when we learned that the USOC was going to make its decision in that first week, uh, we, we actually thought we had done enough at that point to convince them or persuade them to choose a different city. Um, not that, you know, we had not necessarily been as high profile as we ultimately ended up being through the, through the post-January process, but we thought we had done enough. You know, Boston Magazine had written a few pieces, the Globe had started quoting us, um, and that that had shown that there was opposition in Boston. Uh, and of course, they, they did choose Boston, and the, you know, from the minute they did until the minute the bid was dropped, it became sort of a 24-7 operation for us um, and something that we were entirely dedicated to uh, because there was just so much interest in it and so, so much activity and so many things to do. Right. So that's the context in which you operated. Now let's zoom in on the strategy, right? So you got together on the couch of your girlfriend or your girlfriend? His girlfriend lived down the street. It was right. my, so my wife's here. couch. I mean, I guess technically it was my All right. <laughs> I think your dog uh, owns that couch. My dog's couch. Humans are allowed to sit there on occasion. So, <laughs> did you know? Did you guys know each other before this? Uh, yeah. So, our um, kind of interesting to the the founding story. We had met during the summer of business school um, when we were looking at potential jobs, and you know, while the job, you know, the management consulting approach requires a certain kind of part of your brain, we were both really interested in the politics. So, we actually spent the entire you know, weekend that we were together, more talking about the political side, um, and then stayed in touch kind of after that. And that was, um, you know, I think some of that early approach, you know, that Chris really drove um, was taking that approach to picking up the phone and calling an expert. I mean, that's what you do when you're hired to go solve one of these problems. And, you know, created a little bit of a framework that said, well, you know, Boston could be the American city. America could be the IOC city. When you break it down into small chunks and actually lay out the process, there's never room for a, a public discussion. And it's very intentional on the part of the IOC. They take advantage of the way that the public conversation will go when it's driven by a small group of concentrated people and what is effectively you know, a, a traditional collective action problem where 98% of the population doesn't really have an incentive to get together even if half of them uh, are opposed. Um, and when you know Chris picked up the phone and called some experts, you know one of the most jarring pieces for us that kind of married the policy problem with the political problem um, was there were leading experts on mega events in Massachusetts 
who requested to be on the original feasibility study. And this is way back. This is, this is 14 January, months before. Of right. 2014. A year yeah. before the decision. Um, and started to realize, you know, this was set up in a very specific way where people who could bring that type of information that, you know, there were no economists on the panel and those economists tried to get on. Uh, and that's where we kind of sniffed both the policy and the political problem and opportunity. So at what point did this transform from concern as citizens, as Bostonians, into the 24-7 strategy operation uh, you know, ultimately led to uh, defeating um, the proponents. So, at what point did you did you feel like we have to get serious about this and 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 put everything into it? Um, I think it it definitely changed in January when it, we were selected, but we were giving it a lot of effort before then as well. There was a lot of conversations, and at that time, it was a very different type of conversation from other people. Like, people were like, oh, well, what, what do you mean? That's never going to happen, or it's a great idea. It's amazing. What are you talking about? You're going to never work in this town. What are you talking about? Don't do this. So it changed. It flipped a lot in January, but we were working on it frequently, I mean, daily at times, um, in spare time, on this effort before that, for sure. And for you? Because you had jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so we all had... This is more than being concerned as a citizen. This is actually sacrificing yeah. your time, uh, you so know, we, uh, your life on hold for nine months, was it, right? So, I mean, I should say, and we can never say enough, that Chris and Kelly did give up an incredible, you know... Um, amount of their professional and personal lives to go full force. I ended up at that time, my personal circumstances, you know, I ended up having a, a baby and um, having to focus full time on work as well. So, um, you know, when it comes to actual sacrifice, um, you know, they might have spent $3 million on communications consultants in PR and political. I think we had $3 million worth just from Chris and Kelly for those nine months. Um, You'll be getting a bill. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but at the outset, when it came time to just have a formal name, um, you know, I think a lot was made of Twitter at the end and a lot was made of social media at the end. Um, one thing that it did do was at the beginning lower, lower the barrier to entry for either a fact-based argument or a pithy argument to get out there. And we had plenty of both. Um, so it doesn't take, you know, it didn't take a ton of time um, to get some of those data points. Um, and it didn't take a ton of time to you know, have something pithy. It was more, you had to know where to go find the information. Um, and you had to maybe have something pop in your head in the middle of the night and then say, we're going to tweet this out tomorrow. Uh, and I don't want to downplay the very early part, but it didn't take over our lives in November, December of 2013 or January 2014. Um, and that I think is one, you know, the, the low barrier to entry that Twitter created to, you know, we put about $150 into Twitter ads to follow a bunch of journalists. And so then they would see our tweets. And it was like, well, I'm writing a story, and I get this on one side, and now here's a story on the other side. And that was pretty, you know, kind of low low barrier there um, originally for us, I'd say. Um, so, so, so let's um, shift to the, um, uh, the repertoire of tools that you use to, to organize, right? You, you mentioned Twitter. Um, wh what other tools did you use that you think gave you that strategic advantage? The, the main organizing tool that we used is a tool called Nation Builder, and people that have done organizing, that's probably a familiar tool to them. 
it's a great way to integrate your website with your email database, with your Facebook followers, with your Twitter followers. Uh, and, and the cost of it is relatively low. It sort of scales up as your organization grows. Um, so probably many of you in the room here today um, got an email that we sent out saying, come to this event. That was all sent through our Nation Builder tool. And when you RSVP'd on the website, that logged you in. So I could, I could go to uh, Mike Casella, who's sitting in the second to last row back there. I could go to his profile and see that he contributed some money and that he wrote us three emails over the last six months and that he RSVP'd to two of our organizing events. And you can start to actually build um, sort of a grassroots organization that way and understand who, who are your supporters, where do they live, who might their state representatives be, what are the things that are motivating them, what, when you send them a message, what's encouraging them to reply or to make a contribution. Uh, so I, Nation Builder is great for anyone that's um, in a similar situation to ours or thinking about building an organization. It tied in very well with Facebook uh, and we had uh, a, a gentleman who was a volunteer for us that um, Fergal O'Toole is his name, is a Somerville community organizer who helped us with uh, integrating Facebook into what we were doing. And that's a very easy way to just get a lot of attention, to have people sort of feel like they're associated with your cause. Uh, once they like your page, they'll start seeing your posts as things move on. He has uh, a very entertaining Twitter handle, uh, Data for Donkeys, yeah. I believe is what it is. Um, and then... And then a lot of it was kind of old-fashioned organizing. Uh, that first community meeting that we had, and probably some of you that are here tonight were at that meeting in the back bay in the second week of January. It was the, uh, the Tuesday after the, the USOC chose Boston. Uh, that was, you know, 150 concerned citizens in the room, and, and maybe not everyone was concerned. Maybe it was just interested citizens. Um, but we got people together, and we talked about who we were, why we were opposed to the bid, what kind of help we wanted from them. Uh, and, and that meeting led to so many other opportunities. I think of um, Lee and Diana Humphrey, uh, who attended that meeting and were incredibly generous to our cause over the last seven or eight months um, because they showed up there and they got engaged uh, in the process. So um, it's, you know, it's old-fashioned tools as well as new ones. So both the, the new and the old tools were focused uh, in the beginning on informing the public, right? And, and then in get, getting them engaged, making sure that debate happens. Uh, how did you translate that energy that you mobilized into political pressure? Or did that happen just by itself? What, what did you do in addition yeah. to mobilizing that actually translated into thwarting this bid? Well, I think of that event in the back bay uh, and this is, you know, this, the second week of January. At that point, and, and the reporters here will remember this as well as I do, probably better, um, Boston 2024 had said that they would show portions of the bid to reporters, but they would act, wouldn't actually allow you to take it with you. They were going to bring you into a room and have you review it for an hour and a half uh, and take any notes you wanted to, but then they weren't going to let you keep it. Uh, and that was, their, that was their plan. That was their strategy. Um, within an hour of reports coming out about our community meeting, they had changed that policy, and they had said, okay, we're going to let reporters actually have full access to this bid. I think it was a moment where they saw, whoa, we're actually, you know, this is not just a couple people on Twitter who are trying to make a political argument. There are actually real people out there who have serious concerns about this bid and are ready to help no Boston Olympics and other groups 
So we need to be more responsive. And I think that, that's probably the most um, kind of tangible reaction. And, and the release of that bid, of course, led to so many other issues, because it turns out that the bid that Boston 2024 submitted in December had a, a number of inaccuracies in it. Um, it. They hadn't really gone through a, a credible engagement process. And because of that, they, it was never really vetted. And so there was misinformation in there that had persuaded the USOC to choose Boston, but um, was just not the, consistent with the reality on the ground. The final question about your strategy. What was the tipping point? Was there any tipping point in the, in the campaign where you felt like, oh, now we're, now we're on the winning hand? Um, so aside from the mission of informing the public, there was kind of a separate consideration, which was winning. We also want to win because uh, we firmly believed it was the right thing to do. Also turned out to be fun. Yeah, that kind of came um, true, yeah. Yeah. And there was one piece of polling data that was very clear. Two-thirds of voters are opposed to spending tax dollars on the Olympics. That was the holy grail number. There were a lot of other things that contributed to driving poll numbers. Um, but for us, that was one of continuing to come back to the variety of arguments you could make to drive that number. So whether that's you know, we want to spend that money, you know, for I think most of us, it's we would rather spend those money on other social issues. I think we're tax and spend well liberals. I won't speak for everybody, but um, I'm a tax and spend well liberal. You know, if you're on the conservative end of the spectrum, you'd rather just not spend that money at all or spend it in, a, you know, keep it in people's pockets or whatever they say. Um, sorry. <laughs> but uh, for us, that one number of, hey, if we can frame this around that one number that is not moving, that number is not moving, um, we're going to win. And for us, that was a, a bit of a strategic kind of holy grail, I think. Kelly? I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm one that I didn't think we were winning until it was done. You play through the, the whistle, is what I say frequently. So I still can't believe it in a way. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think we couldn't really. I mean, there was encouraging moments, but everything was always, okay, who cares? Like the polling nights, we would text like 200 times and like, just could it be this, could it be that? And I was like, just go to sleep. And of course, none of us would. But I think there was something of let's just keep moving forward. Let's look at long term game. Let's not look at right now. And then it sort of snowballed. Literally and figuratively. I, I think on the polling, just quickly, I mean, that first poll that came out in January from WBUR and Mass Inc., and, and um, it's impossible to overstate how important that polling data was to influencing the conversation. They really did an incredible job, how consistent they were. Um, but even that first poll in January, I think it was something like 52 or 53% support the bid and only 38 or 39% oppose the bid. You know, that's, so that's sort of, you know, tough news to hear, right, when you're no Boston Olympics and you're losing by 15 points. But even then, you know, if we were helping provide a voice to the 38% of people that had real concerns about this bid, that was an important place for us to be. And it was an, it was an important voice to magnify and echo. Uh, and even if the numbers had never budged from those, those, that, those points, I think we would have been, you know, proud or content to say, well, we're at least... Um, we're at least sort of playing an important role in this overall broader debate, which will ultimately leave this region that we care so much about better off, even if the Olympics do come. Even if we had lost this battle, uh, you would have still informed the public and you would have contributed to a better debate and a better decision. Yeah. Now, 
your budget. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is true. I read that it was $15,000 or thereabouts. Less than that. Less than 15000 uh, What was yeah. the budget of the, um, the 2024 uh, organizing committee for the bid? The one they spent or the amount they raised? Because right. <laughs> there's a, a couple million dollars difference between those two. Um, we, uh, so by the time the bid was pulled in July, late July of 2015, we had spent a total of less than $7,500 on the entire effort. Um, we've since spent a little bit more because we bought some thank you notes and like some mugs and <laughs> beer koozies and stuff like that. You bought people. mugs? <laughs> we bought mugs. Um, I want uh, a mug. So, Say no Boston Olympics and we gave them to people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we were outspent more than 1,000 to 1. I think when the final tally comes out, it'll probably be something like 1,200 or, or 1,300 yeah, to 1. So I, I think this is very interesting. And not only have you been very effective, uh, but you've also been very efficient. You did it just on a shoestring. And um, I'm wondering, what, did you str what was the, the biggest challenge for you guys in, in this whole campaign? Um, what, what was the most difficult thing about it, um, you know, either as an organizing team or the politics of it, or getting people engaged? What was the hardest part about it? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll speak personally, and they'll go um, more tactically. Uh, it, it's just a lot of work. It's it's all day, all night. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. And I think that's a lot. That taxes a lot. We didn't have an office. We didn't have a printer. We didn't have a stationery. We didn't have any of those things. Uh, part of that, though, is there's flexibility. We could we would go anywhere. We would hustle. And the energy to work that hard is the maybe the quicker we'll end. So you're your own worst enemy in that point. Um, so, I mean, that's a personal, the most difficult piece. But, I mean, also, you're against some of the biggest giants of this town. It's a really small town, and it it's uh, tricky to navigate those waters, and you got to keep your ego in check and can stay disciplined. Can you elaborate on that? What's um, that? It Because you want, you have friendships, you have, it's, there's certain ways that this uh, city is run, and how, uh, the sport of politics and policy is created and trying to be professional and also be effective is just an interesting balance to um, and walk that line. So I think we, we hope we did a good job of that and never try to make it personal with anyone at the mayor's office or at 2024. And sometimes that's challenging and it's an emotional, fervent debate about an issue in a region that we care very much about. So um, give an example of that. <laughs> I love this. I'm like on the stand. Um, an example of which part? You know, how to keep the balance, how to make sure that you don't alienate people, you know. Liam? <laughs> well, we would joke around. So our, our fourth uh, or the, the third founder uh, and the fourth musketeer, to your original analogy, um, we would joke around that, uh, you know, we're all first-generation political people we you know we don't kind of we didn't grow up in it um so we maybe we don't know when to say when um and to, to your last question about kind of the powers that be and whatnot um as far as a challenge um there was a we took on a responsibility that we didn't know we were going to get and um i was you know as i had less time um to, to spend was blown away by the seriousness with which Chris and Kelly took that responsibility 
Um, and that was the responsibility of so many people's time and generosity volunteering, you know, people coming and, and, uh, and then just the fact that, Hey, this is a made, this is a big deal. We got into this because it was a big deal. We didn't get into this because we were going to get asked about it all the time. And, you know, when it's, Hey, you, you need a statement by four o'clock on this and it's going to be on the front page of the globe. Um, that's a responsibility. Um, and I think that was a, you know, that was a team, um, challenge of accepting that responsibility and treating it with treating it with the seriousness it deserved um, without those maybe other other resources so Kelly what's um, your quote about like old enough young enough oh um, I'm old enough to know how this town is run but young enough to think I can change it or make a difference so um, we might have been in that sweet spot of not yet seen too many things go awry and still think oh I can make impact here I know a little bit how to navigate this but um, I'm not jaded too much either that it, you try, 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 and it doesn't change. So, and this changes a lot because it was, uh, it, we flipped the narrative a bit. I think that's, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I think I would have been, and I'm probably, I, in fact, I know I'm the most confrontational of, of the three of us and the one that's most eager to sort of wade into those messy debates sometimes. I think I would have had all the energy and passion to have done this at the age of 25, but not the experience and the skill and the understanding. And probably by 45, you know, that window will have closed because I'll have a wife and kids and a mortgage and all these other things I need to think about when um, going up against, you know, six of the 10. I mean, we I was looking at it the other day of the Boston Magazine's 10 most powerful people in Boston, six, six of them. Um, had either given money to Boston 2024, publicly supported Boston 2024, or both. Um, um, and and I think by 45, that I probably won't have the opportunity to sort of go up against folks like that. Uh, and so there was a sweet spot there. Great. Well, thank you so much. So we talked about you know the original cause. We talked about your strategy and how you personally experienced this. So now let's take this uh, places in a broader context and hear from you guys as journalists how you have uh, observed what happened here and uh, how remarkable that really is. Kyle. So I, I first met Chris because I remember, I think it was uh, Rich Davey spoke on Dennis and Callahan, and I just wrote it up. I needed something to put online. I really wasn't in the Olympics beat yet. Before then, I was at the Lowell Sun, just covering Bill Ricca, nothing of much consequence. That comes in handy later. Hold on. <laughs> wonderful when they want to put one of their venues in the my old town where I still have sources. Chris calls me up and he goes, I have a few problems with your article. And usually I shut off when I hear that. But he walked me through it. He showed me a slide and he showed, well, you know, they're saying this, but if you look at the budget, it's clearly something else. And I really, it resonated with me, and it prompted me to take a deeper look at, at, at what the bid was pushing out there. And because I was so new to the job, I didn't have the sourcing. I didn't have the folks inside the bid. I didn't have the folks in City Hall. So I figured I'd go straight to the source. So I started filing a bunch of public records requests, and that's how we ended up getting uh, the bid book, the first four chapters of it, much to my chagrin. But... I filed a request we, from previous emails filed by uh, Joel Fleming, this lawyer, also in, in No Boss in 2024. I saw in some emails from the UMass Donahue Institute that the bid had shared with them uh, bid 1.0, and they're being really careful with it. And 
I saw they had given a non-disclosure agreement. They were saying, please don't share this out. Keep it within your staff. And I saw that, and I said, I want that. Are you kidding? You're being this careful. It must be really bad. So I would like to write about it. I'd like to put it up for all to see. So I filed a, a public records request with the uh, Deputy General Counsel, uh, Peter Mickelson, who I still owe a fruit basket for all this. And, uh, and sure enough, a couple, maybe a month to the day later, we received uh, bid 1.0, the first four chapters, and a little manila envelope, and in the worst handwriting, in Sharpie, just bid book. Like, this can't be it. <laughs> You're joking. So I opened it up, and, and sure enough, it is. And, uh, and I was amazed. So we, we rushed to put it online. And I really do believe that the bid never recovered from that. Because there finally was tangible, right in front of your eyes evidence that they weren't being completely honest with the public. They had pushed something that they marketed as the same bid book that they presented to the USOC. And it just wasn't. The same one that was available to the public was not at all the one that they gave to the USOC. Cost estimates were scrubbed out. There were entire sections about potential threats to the bid that were completely left out of the equation. So I think that was the first instance, and a very egregious one, where we saw that what was being rolled out to the public was not at all what was going on in, in you know, the smoke-filled rooms, as they say. And in the following months, I think all of their actions were sort of playing catch-up for that. So was it as much strategic incompetence of the organizing committee as strategic genius <laughs> of the opponents? I think there was a ton of incompetence. <laughs> all right. If I could be frank. Garrett? There's a, a, one of the most important things, I, I think, in terms of doing business in, in Boston and doing bus in business politically in, in, in this town uh, in this hub, if you want to be particular, because I know people say this town for D.C., but uh, is you have to engage with people, talk to people, and, and work with communities, talk to stakeholders, go to the spaghetti dinners, go to the uh, uh, you know the little league games, go to the, the community things, and in the run up to this, Boston twenty twenty four never did that. There was none of the traditional community organizing that takes place in any type of major movement. Any type of developer that's worth, has two pennies to rub together, will hire a firm or talk to people or go and be like, hey, I want to do this thing. Here's this plan. Let's make something to work it all together, blah, 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 blah. There's some elements where people try to ramp things through, but then they, it, it's harder for them when they do that. There was an incident here in Cambridge uh, not that long ago up at the old courthouse and police station in East Cambridge. And the opponents of this thing got their clocks clean because the guys that came in knew what they were doing. They went around, they talked to every, they knocked on every single door, they talked to all these people and figured out what it is that this, these people want and how they can make this plan more palatable for everybody. And Boston 2024 never really did that. And they created a cloud of suspicion, not only within the public, but within the press. And what, what Kyle found out in pulling all these documents was that their, their inability to communicate and build some type of uh, consensus with, the com with their community and the stakeholders hurt them even more because people were even more caught off guard when all this stuff came out. Uh, uh, every, in, every, in every which way, every little proposal, there were people like, well, nobody came in my neighborhood and said they want to put this thing here. I think this university even was caught off guard. They were like, well, you want to do what? <laughs> oh, uh, pass. And, and, and that's what happened. 
Uh, by the way, I know there's people in the back. There's some seats up here if you're tired of standing. But um, I, again, I think one of the most important things anybody in, this, in, in Boston, if you're going to in Cambridge and Greater Boston, in Massachusetts, you have to engage with people. You can't just show up and be like, we're going to do this. And from the get-go, it seemed like 2024 was a, uh, a top-down thing that people just wanted to jam down our throats, including the press. Well, what do you think they were thinking? How would they pull this off? I mean, what you describe is, is a picture of people who just think they can do this, but that can't be true, right? I mean, kind of there was a big coalition uh, supporting the bid, so people must have been in those smoke-filled rooms and, you know, made a plan, and this, this doesn't sound like a really good plan. Yeah, it wasn't. Was <laughs> <laughs> right. So what was going on there? Going on there, it's. Uh, I think what they did, they very much underestimated the people of Boston. I think they underestimated the people of the Commonwealth, and I think that was their undoing. And I think they misinterpreted a lot of the poll numbers, especially towards the end, when they saw just the slightest glimmer of hope that spreading the venues out across the state would improve their favorability. But then they just kept. They spread out across the state, sure, but they kept making the same mistakes they were doing in Boston across the state. As so, like you have in Bill Ricca, I called up my old, my old source, I called the, the town manager. I said, John, they're going to put the Olympics in Bill Ricca, at least part of it. Do you know anything about this? He goes, no, nah, this is the first I've heard of it. And I said, oh my God, this has been happening all over Boston. And now it's going to be in Bill Ricca and New Bedford. We actually had a very brief theory in the BOMAG newsroom that they were putting venues on Superfund sites. <laughs> they weren't, but, you know, it's, yeah. you try to look for patterns when you're a journalist. But. I, I think one of the other big problems, um, uh, you know, as somebody who's covered politics in, in, in the state for a little while, one of the things you, you have to notice is how operations are run. You really, if you're a nerd like myself, you really get into the, the mechanics of things, the real nitty gritty of, well, how are you going to mobilize voters? How are you going to, how are you going to communicate with people? How are you going to get your message out? And one of the bigger problems I think that Boston 2024 had in, in after, after our discussions with people that were running it is that there was uh, there was dis there was. It, incredible internal disagreement over whether it was going to be run like a product or run like a political campaign. And at the end, this internal disagreement over how to operate brought them down and tremendous, brought them down because meanwhile, you've got these opponents out there who are operating, I think, like a political operation. And, and meanwhile, what you're trying to do is you're trying to sell somebody uh, cereal and they don't want it. And uh, you can't, no matter, even if you make it a hot cereal, they don't want it. So, uh, and, and they had to, what they had to do is they had to go to door to door. They had to knock, and they couldn't do that. And even when they tried, uh, basic little things, I was told, like they couldn't, um, Massachusetts being, you know, the, uh, you know, just to the left of uh, the old Soviet Union, had, um, you have to have union, the union emblem on, uh, on everything, anything politically. So they ordered something like 10, 50,000 uh, pamphlets, stickers, signs, and they didn't put the emblem on it. This is so important to local democratic activists and people that are plugged in and have nothing better to do but be angry about something. And if you don't do that, you're going to piss a lot of people off, and that's what happened. So uh, when we look at the history of Boston, you know, uh, I mean, it is true that from all the, uh, of all the cities that uh, put out bids, uh, in Boston, the opposition 
was the strongest, right? Is, is there a particular explanation that you have why the opposition here was stronger? Not so much because of uh, your work, but also because of the public opinion that was already there that was just being ignored at that point by the committee. Yeah, mm -hmm. odd we beat out Budapest, huh? <laughs> but I think they tapped into something. A, a lot of people opposed the Olympics for different reasons, for the you know, subjugation of, of uh, a lot of LGBT people, uh, free speech abuses, or you can oppose it from an urban planning standpoint, or you just think they're really boring to watch, myself included. There are so many different reasons to oppose them. And I think what made No Boss and Olympics so successful is that they were able to bundle them together. And a lot of times you'll see these, these oppositions splinter off. And it's sort of like, you know, the old uh, Ben Franklin drawing. You join or die, and you, you know, we separate, we fat. I, I can't even think of it. It's on the tip of my tongue. United but basically, we stand. United we stand. There we go. So, yeah, so that's basically what happened. And I think Chris, in, in particular, really was the, the visible face. And I think I wrote somewhere the velvety voice of the opposition. <laughs> and I think it gave a great deal of legitimacy to the opposition. Because you have, you know, granted, they, the opposition was a lot of, uh, it was 10 people on Twitter, I've heard. And a lot That's of... an interesting point. Do you yeah. think, uh, because of who they are or how they come across, they were more successful uh, than if it was, had been another group, a more institutionalized group, or different demographic, or different political uh, ideology? Sure, well, the Olympics were an interesting... Uh, issue because it didn't fall along typical party lines. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives. And when you take that out of it, 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 it was sold solely on the merit of, is this a good idea or not? And then when you go into another dimension of that is, do I believe these people? Are the messengers credible? And I think from day one, because they never engaged with the public, like Garrett said, Boston 2024 was plagued with a terrible uh, credibility issue. From the start, their messengers weren't very good. I mean, you have Rich Davey, who's former head of the MBTA, and you have him talking about how great a plan this is when you can't even get two stops on the T without it breaking down in, in a snowdrift. And then you have Steve Pagliuca, who replaces John Fish, who the public really never connected with. And when Pagliuca comes in, you have a guy who blew gobs and gobs of his own money on a failed campaign and finished, what, dead last? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so just you checked have... with your editor, by the way, I think. <laughs> right. Is that what just Fact happened? Fact check. <laughs> I think he, he also spent, uh, Steve Pagliuga also spent uh, more money per vote than anybody. I think, I want to say in the 2010 primary, um, in the... Uh, uh, 2009 special. 2009 special, he spent, I want to say around $10 million, just in the primary. He spent four times as much as Alan Casey in Los Right, Trump. right. And Casey came in there, but Casey also got the Globe endorsement, which, which, which helped, which, 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 which helped carry it. So, so back to this, um, this opposition that, that was already there, but it hadn't been amplified yet, and to a large extent had been ignored by the committee. So here come these three people. I just wanted to point one thing, right? too. Uh, the campaign manager, the, the main group of people who were behind Pag, uh, Steve Pagliuga's campaign also happened to be the people who were in charge of communications for uh, the Boston Olympic bid. Right. Right. 
Same, same crew. So you, you, have, you have a plan that you guys say is, is bad. You have a, an organizing committee that you say is, to some extent, incompetent, right? Uh, and, but then, in, to what extent do circumstances here in Boston play a role? Uh, we had a brutal winter where people you know, just couldn't get through traffic, so it's hard to believe that with the Olympics, you know, you, that, that will be better. Um, the Big Dig is, uh, is part of the history here, over budget, um, a lot of disruption. Uh, to what extent did that play a role in this? Or I think it's very difficult to not discount the, the lingering memory of the Big Dig, the winter. Also, you have to look at the history of uh, Boston's general reluctance to embrace corporate welfare for athletics or for um, uh, major, uh, major big event, uh, mega event projects. If you go back to the uh, the the Boston Garden, the T. Uh, well, then it was called. I want to believe the, pr the not the Prudential Center, the Shamit Center, yeah. the Shamit Center. Then it became the Fleet Center. Then it was the Garden and then TD Garden or whatever. Um, and uh, also look at what happened with the Megaplex project. Now you know I think everybody up here was a little. We were all kind of young, pretty young for that. I don't even know if you were alive, but um, the. the the thing is, uh, that was if you go back and you go back and remember that fight over that, there was no, there was, all it was all going to be privately funded. The, the 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 argument wasn't about funding stadiums or things like that. It was how much you're going to give us in linkage fees. So this, the same thing went for the garden. I think the garden's deal ended up extracting, I think, I want to say two, three million something dollars a year for 20 years or something like that, from the, from Jacobs and Delaware North, uh, in that project. So. The, the idea of publicly funding anything like this is already dead on arrival in Beacon Hill. The winter, uh, and, and this isn't to discredit the work of any of you guys, but this brutal winter came at a perfect time for opponents to this thing. It demoralized everyone. And it, and it was, and, and, and the t thing never recovered. The argument was for a long time that, oh, well, you know, when the snow melts, everybody's going to get on board with this. It didn't happen. And it was sort of, it did play a long the snow never melted. The snow never <laughs> melted. So at the same time, the, the other thing that I think that they, they were hurt from, too, is so that... Maybe there would be, be more successful winter games here, right? Well, uh, that, that might have pulled that off. That, that, <laughs> as, as an avid skier, I actually have wanted to write that essay why we should have gone for the Winter Olympics for a right. long time, <laughs> just to troll them. But, um, <laughs> but, but no, you know, in, in reality, there were a number of things that came together. It was a per perfect storm, I think, in a lot of ways for the opponents. And on, on to Kyle's point, too, about social media being a big factor of this. Uh, I know that no, these guys, you know, the no Boston Olympics guys were not exactly um, – there was a whole separate group that hasn't been brought up here called No Boston 2024. They were rabid in their opposition to the Olympics on social media to the point where they were making it personal. And I think, you know, when these guys – when, when, the when the proponents of the games talk about the Olympics being uh, – talk about the Olympics, about 10 people on Twitter, it's because they did get in their heads. It became personal. Now, and you would see some of these opponents, the Robin Jakes of the world, Jonathan Cones, like just relentlessly all day, all day, just attack – savaging people. Um, and, and, and I don't know if you can talk to Patrick Sandusky's meltdown on Twitter, the old – but these people lost their minds because it was just an endless barrage of attacks. I've never seen anything like it in my years of covering politics. It was unbelievable. It was worse than what people did to John Conley in the 2013 race, and he ended up on Deadspin. <laughs> Going so, back to your point about yeah. uh, uh, the big dig, I think we have a much bigger public appetite for mega projects like the big dig when there is some perceived benefit. 
you know, I think we're willing to endure the traffic begrudgingly and take on this huge undertaking when from its very inception, it was intended to improve the lives of the people of Boston and the people of the Commonwealth. Boston 2024 was not that. It was a mega event, and I think the bid organizers' actions since the bid went kaput really shows what their motivations were when it was still alive. And I think transportation, uh, transportation projects were only thrown in as a sort of sweetener. Sort of, you know, like the Ronco commercials. And but wait, there's more. We'll we'll, throw, we'll overhaul the green line, and we'll make, <laughs> and we'll put the red line station. And just all these things that seem like such an afterthought. Well, it's it's almost incredible the way you describe it, right? And it it only makes sense, you know, if you're a sensible citizen to to stand up against it. And you guys did that. You did it successfully. Uh, we're here at the S Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, so we always like a good story, but we also like to draw lessons from it beyond that story, right? So if you, you know, zoom out from the Boston Olympics, what are the, the implications here for local democratic governance, either from the perspective of organizers such as yourselves or from, you know, the, the broader uh, democratic polities? So what, what are the takeaways, lessons, or implications here? I'd like to ask all of you and then open up for the public, to, to the public, to the audience. One big point that I think touches on the success or the, the efficacy of the fourth estate in this process was, um, you know, Boston has really, really tight links between people. And we also have a lot of really educated people and people that pay attention. Um, so those things all fed in to each other in ways like the Mass Inc., which is a think tank here that has a polling arm. They polled every month. Los Angeles, a city six times our size, still has not had an independent public poll. So you could actually see public support dropping. Public support could be dropping in LA and we wouldn't even know. I think that's one big thing. Two, uh, are you, are you class of 2014 at BU? I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think the class of 2014 at BU from the journalism school broke more major stories than some major outlets. Yeah. And it is sharp, hungry people. I mean, if you think about it, we said we didn't know any better. It's kind of interesting to hear Kyle say, well, I didn't really have any sources, so I just started going after it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the volunteers who stepped up, the, you know, Chris and I go into public, we played high school basketball against each other. We didn't know each other. But you get these dense ties of people who all kind of know each other. You have friends in common. Uh, and I think the last point, just the general educational attainment, uh, we talked about how conservative, liberal, you know, urban, suburban, there wasn't really a sharp split in the polling except one thing. Are you paying attention? And the more you paid attention, the more opposed you were. It doesn't really, first of all, you need the media to do that. You need polling. You need a lot of things to do that. Um, you also need everyday citizens to just be paying attention. And if you have, you know, if, if instead of that bar on that chart being 60%, it was 30%, the poll numbers are flipped. If one out of five people was not paying attention, that was, the poll numbers are flipped. And that's a really kind of cool story, I think, that has think tanks, media, hungry young journalists, and a lot of things in it that aren't necessarily the organized opposition. Kelly? Just like final thoughts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot. Um, I think one thought I've had a lot throughout this was in the beginning that flip was that we were in the minority thought it felt like in last year. And that's a hard place to be in this town when 
there is a lot of uh, flavors, but not always are they represented and discussed. And then, so we kind of took that stand, and then it turned out we represented the majority of the thought. And so I think that courage piece is a big part in this conversation um, that isn't always found in Beacon Hill and uh, being bold enough to say something. And I think when it says that 10 people on Twitter piece, I mean, there's something that says that 10 people on Twitter can make a big difference and make a big impact. So um, kind of the power of one is really important on this. And I think the, the big deep-pocketed people don't always win. So that is encouraging to me still. So what are you going to stop next? Oh, God. <laughs> no, any ideas? <laughs> so, um, you know, there's this question about uh, development and the need to go around to the community and sort of engage them before you roll out the plans. And Boston 2024 didn't do that. I think, to their credit, I think it was the USOC that was telling them that they shouldn't do that. And that really should have caused Boston 2024 to pause and say, wait a minute, is this really the right partner for us? Is this really an institution and organization that we want to be linked to when they're telling us we shouldn't engage with our own community? Um, but the you know, the, the reason that this is important is not just because, like, someone might get a free spaghetti dinner out of it in that engagement. In this case, if they had done that engagement, they actually would have ended up with a better bid. Their bid would have survived much longer if they had done that engagement because people would have said, wait, you have in here that this rail project is already funded and going to get built, and it's not actually funded, and so you should take that out. Um, now, you could make the case that they never would have gotten the USOC's approval if they had done that, but... They, it's not just about engaging the community so that you can check that box and say, okay, we did that, now on to the next thing. It will actually make your project better. And I think, um, you know, I think there is a great story about small d democratic uh, governance here where people really engaged. And I think we were often the, the face of that, but uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about so many people who are out there who are sending us encouragement uh, sending us, a, you know, small contributions. Our average contribution was $108 compared to Boston 2024's of about $70,000. So you met with the governor and with the mayor. Um, do you think they took this lesson away from this? Um, I think that they, um, in a lot of ways, also inherited this during a transitional time for them both. Um, this had been going on for a little bit, but not necessarily a large deep dive conversation. I think, to Chris's point, is that something about it coming from the community first is always something that I think both of them um, would agree with. So uh, perhaps this issue kind of ran out of runway for them to sort of um, cobra strike back, but I think overall uh, they would agree that and that. Well, thank you so much. Final thoughts for you guys, and then we're going to... Let's see if there's any questions from the audience. Sure. So, uh, quick story. I was still at the Lowell Sun when they announced that the uh, that Boston was tapped as the city. I had a graveyard shift that night. I uh, had to go sit by the police scanner. Really lovely work. And so I had the day free. So I went and played hockey in Lowell. And then I remember getting out, getting back into my car, turning on BUR, and we won the bid. And I didn't expect us to win the bid. And truthfully, I've heard from no, numerous people at Boston 2024, they didn't expect it either. So it came to shock to all of us. And then I got, I got a text from another BU 2014 uh, journalist and said, they're screwed. So what are you talking about? They got the titans of industry. They're going to they're gonna seal this down. Because they've never met a press corps like Boston's before. 
And I think that really, I mean, the globe kind of fell asleep, but I think <laughs> the independent, and that is the this importance. It's recorded, just so you know, it's going to go on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so much for upward mobility. Huh? <laughs> but I think that's the biggest takeaway is that if you're going to be doing a project like this in Boston, be forthright with the press, communicate with the press, and communicate often. Give us the whole story, not redacted portions of it. And if you don't, we will make a fool of you, relentlessly. <laughs> this is the new baboot word, right? <laughs> I can see that. All right, Garrett. I, I think the, the failure of Boston 2024 speaks more broadly to, not necessarily the people in Boston, the local folks, but I think more broadly to the Olympic movement and the U.S. Olympic Committee. Nobody wants to host the Olympics. Yesterday, Toronto, I believe a world-class city, uh, pulled their bid. They said, you know what, we're not going to get involved in this. We're not going to do it. Uh, you saw the 2022 Winter Olympics uh, came down to the great democratic free market uh, countries of uh, uh, China in Beijing and Kazakhstan of Almaty. Almaty, Kazakhstan, and they gave it to a they gave those Winter Olympics to a place where it, it gets an, on average three inches of snow a year. Makes total sense. So the the Olympics and the IOC and the USOC have a real branding problem. I mean, they're, they're they are a toxic brand for a lot of municipalities that want to host them. They're I, I don't I wouldn't say they they have as much of an image problem as FIFA. They don't have you know Mr. Ba President Bach is not getting dragged out of their headquarters in, in, in bracelets, but um, the, you know, their board, all of their members of their board, by the way, Sepp Blatter is on the IOC uh, executive board, um, on the IOC, the, the International right. Olympic Committee. Back to the so, lessons. Right, so <laughs> I, I, I think at the end of the day, this speaks more broadly to the, the problem that, that, that there's a growing hostility, I think, towards giving mega events and towards giving away uh, money to big business to build stadiums and arenas. Although you haven't had that, not that's not uniform, but I think the, the momentum is shifting that way, publicly anyway. I think, uh, was it you who wrote that Boston is simply not willing to mortgage its future for a three-week party? Yeah. That was your line, right? Yeah. yeah. I want to thank you for excellent reporting on this. It's, uh, it's been really fun reading those uh, stories, but also very insightful in terms of the, the deeper dynamics in, in this town. So let's hear from the, the audience. Uh, there must be Questions? Yes, uh, a lot of questions. Um, yes, Lisa. I'm curious that nobody's mentioning all the other political pressures that came to bear. There were groups of us that were waiting to do a recall petition if Walsh had signed his contract to uh, uh, give away tax money. Um, there were more than one petition ready to go with uh, people already signed up to do house parties and recruit and train. This would have been a real movement like the, like the highway going through Boston. So um, my sense is you were taking the brunt and you were the center pole. Because it's Boston, we need people who can analyze. It doesn't matter if you have Twitter or websites. You've got to have a brain. You've got to really do your analysis. Then people come forward, give you money and resources. And they had clearly the analysis ability to make it, um, to, to bring out what really needed to be seen, and nobody else could do that. Just, just a, a quick straw poll. Who here has been involved in this campaign? <laughs> <laughs> I get that sense, yeah. So it's about, about 60%. Uh, who was for the Olympics? 
One person. <laughs> okay. In Boston, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, great. I'm, I'm glad uh, you brought up the inner belt because um, I grew up in Brookline Village and uh, grew up with stories. My parents are in the second row, by the way. Um, grew up with stories of uh, the inner belt fight and what it would have meant for my neighborhood in Brookline Village. And I don't think we would ever claim to have accomplished the same things that the folks that fought for against the inner belt um, did. But we always saw it as a model, as um, a situation where uh, local people and um, grassroots people went up against the Chamber of Commerce and some very powerful interests and were able to really change the course of history in Boston. Sir, there in the back. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you. And thank you for bringing up the uh, historical perspective in terms of the anti-highway movement because looking at Boston's history is critical because this is part of a series of historical events ever going back to the American Revolution, and I won't get into lecture format, but Boston leads the nation in terms of activism and organizing against uh, uh, establishment goals and plans such as this. There's also another thread that I would challenge in terms of, gee, Boston, we, we, any smart developer goes to a neighborhood and makes sure they organize. But there's another thread to Boston. And if we look back at the recent history, that there is a, there's a powerful economic elite in the city that has historically ignored organizing efforts. To, in this case, uh, to their, to their uh, uh, loss of the Olympics. And that is the vault which was the, used to be the head of the Catholic Church, the Boston Globe, as, as well as the Bank of Boston, which is now Bank of America. But this is a kind of a superseding organization, if you will, that fell from the top down, from, from, from the top, felt they can control, and there was no need to reach out to the local community. That's my comment. I'll stop and I can keep going, and I apologize. But my question to you is, is looking back in history at every anti-movement, and this was an anti-movement, you weren't for something, you were against something, and, which I had agreed with you. Uh, when you win, and even if you don't win, you step back and say, okay, now what? So five years from now, when Harvard invites you to come back, where will you be relative to your activism? I mean, I think about the, I think about the inner belt, right? And that was a uh, a group that opposed the highways, and then turned that into something called the Boston Transportation Planning Review, which led to the realignment of the Orange Line, the extension of the Red Line to Alewife. They had some built-in advantage, which is that like they had already taken by eminent domain a whole chunk of land in Roxbury and um, all the way down to Hyde Park and demolished buildings. So you had to do something with that space, and there was uh, more clearly a um, an issue or a cause there to embrace. Uh, I don't think we know necessarily what's next for us as individuals or as a group, um, but all three of us and so many people that um, were engaged in our efforts and helped us are people that have been engaged in civic life. Uh, you know, I'm a member of the Brookline Transportation Board. Um, you know, that's to me, that's a good way to sort of advance transportation issues, which I care about. So. I don't know that we have a broader vision, uh, but I would, I would go back to something that Liam was talking about, which is that this is about, it was always about priorities for us. If you think about uh, what I think became that kind of iconic image of this debate, that very first public meeting where there's a crowd like this one and there's six or seven people holding up signs, and there's a no Boston Olympic sign in the middle, but then the ones surrounding it say, better transit, no Olympic games, better housing, no Olympic games, um, better schools, no Olympic Games. Uh, 
you know, we thought this was a situation where it was it had the potential to divert significant resources, both financial and otherwise, away from those things that we think are incredibly important. And just by defending against it, um, we will be able to to keep those resources where they should be, which are some of those core issues facing people on a day-to-day -day basis that are ultimately going to lead to much more prosperity for us as a community. But even more concretely, how are you going to personally be involved in, in civic engagement, civic organizing? Are you the next Barbara Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> or only uh, one Rowdy some... got the show, not Barbara Anderson. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing kind of coming into like the HKS or... I don't think so, but I'm loud, right? <laughs> Coming to the, um, you know, from the, uh, well. It's on, it's on. People yeah, it's are, on. no one's going to want to hear this, I'm sure. Um, I mean, my part. So the, um, kind of thinking of the Ash Center and innovation and government and kind of the mission of this entity we're in. Um, and one thing that has sparked a lot for, um, for me is, you know, what elements of these collective action problem of other collective action problems might have similar elements that we can apply some um, can apply some lessons to because you know as I think a lot of people have said you know every, we put out a little bit of a flag and had at the outset what I think was you could call it confrontational marketing um, and then people kind of ran under that flag or created their own flag and maybe some of that was going to happen anyway but you know, we felt like we could put forward a really strong message with a broad coalition. Um, you know, I think it would be interesting to think what other, and I, I think we've all probably thought individually, what other collective uh, collective action problems are out there. Um, well, we have a couple for you. A couple for yeah, you. We'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll throw you something. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Uh, Madam, over there. Hi, my name is Glendine Hamilton. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Um, so I'm not from Boston. Um, I guess I've lived here for all of like a month. Um, so I'm very interested in hearing a bit more about touching on credibility and the nature of this town. Um, and it's, I'm not familiar with your backgrounds, but um, for Chris, Liam, and Kelly, it seems as if you guys were from Boston um, prior or had some relationship to the city beforehand. So are there things that you would say that would an outsider who was not necessarily from Boston but had some of the same tactics that you did, would, there ha would they have had the success that you did? Or thinking about the culture of Boston, um, is it kind of motivated by did you grow up here, did you play basketball, or did you play in the Little League? Is that more of the culture? And a second part to that is thinking about students who are working in democracies and going potentially going into communities beyond our own, are there sensitivities that we should have as potential outsiders disrupting movements that we think are negative to the welfare? So I actually am not from here either. I was born here, and so the Concord Native piece, and my family's all from here, but I'm reminded frequently that I'm not from here. So I completely relate to your outsider perspective, and I actually have lived in all of the places that the bid cities, the uh, previous ones would have been, in D.C., L.A., et cetera, San Francisco. So um, there is something unique about Boston, 100%, and I hope you'll stay more than a month and uh, you know, join the fabric of this community. But there is something about that, of that um, been here, know that, some of that language. I, you know, the 
through. Some of our the greatness of our little org here is that there wasn't a lot of red tape to get things through, but we had to speak somewhat the same language and make decisions on the fly and work together really well. And it's good that there was three, so we had decisions that needed to break down. There was, you know, someone had to be the deal breaker, but they speak sometimes of things that I don't know what they're talking about, and they have to be educated. And I think that is a challenge to this um, community of feeling like that there are the sometimes the insiders, outsiders, or the haves and have-nots, and we as a community need to do a better job of that, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Ma'am, there in the back. Hi, my name's Heather Mills. Uh, I used to work at the State House, so a little bit curious about your state house strategy. I'm curious because usually when you lobby the state house there's a piece of legislation. There is no legislation in the state house. Who do you work for? Oh, I used to work, work for a state senator that represents Cambridge. Okay. <laughs> so, what was your strategy because there wasn't a piece of legislation and then what are you telling your people, you know, you're figuring out through Nation Builder who's got what rep and then what are you telling them to say? Because there's also this risk of the pushback, like they're being a pain in the ass. Like, are you trying to craft the message of the people when they go to the state house? Or are you letting them tell their own story? Because that's part of what came out of the, for instance, Obama's campaign was like, you know, let people tell their story. I support Obama because healthcare is really important to me. So I'm really nitty gritty tactics. And then I'm, I'm just, what? Yeah, that's basically it. I can take that one too. Um, so. We that would have probably been phase two, what you're talking about, if we had ever gotten there, of being much more robust, of getting a, mobilizing that nation builder to do in-house in visits and give them talking points and really just do like a state house advocacy day on the grand. We didn't get to that point. And some degree of that is we're lucky because that takes a lot more work and we didn't have the manpower to do it. It was very targeted. It was very specific of who we were, we were going to talk to and how we were going to reach them. And that, a lot of that was my entire responsibility so that um was uh, difficult to say the least but it was also um we were grateful that there was an open door for a lot of these because they knew it was a very important issue and we were they were um open to hearing from us and going through data and going through the the weeds and having that and a big piece of it was, and I know it goes back to this, unfortunately, the way the town is run, was trying to make sure that they never had to take that hard vote because they don't want to speak on the floor and you don't want to have them out there. And unfortunately, someone like myself who loves policy and loves the law and wants to have a robust you know, parliament debate is not going to happen at the state house. It just isn't how it's run right now. We'd love that to happen. It's not going to. So I knew we'd have to say, I'm trying to make your job easier so you never have to come out in front of this because you'd have to be neutral until now. They're, of course, oh, I was always against it. It was like... We're worrying when, like, six months ago when no one was against it. But so that was some of the strategy on that piece. Yeah, our state house, state house strategy was Kelly. I mean, she, she <laughs> to know Kelly is to know that at some point you're going to have to do Kelly's bidding. <laughs> uh, and, and so she has a lot of chits up there, and we used them. And it was uh, the only way we were successful up there. Yes, you, ma'am. Yes, that, I thought they did a tremendous job. And the problem with 2024 is it never dawned on them that we have 351 towns in Whalen, I mean in uh, Massachusetts. Some of them are cities with city councils, but most of the rest have open town meetings. And the citizens of Massachusetts are used to being involved in anything that goes on and in any money that is spent in their towns. So that was their initial mistake. And the thing that I think they did very well is let some of us go around, anyone who wanted to, wearing these buttons 
And I was privileged to wear one of these buttons, and people would stop me and say, what do you mean? What's the problem? What's the... And right away, we had a discussion. So I think that their level of communication, we went to all of the neighborhood meetings, that, you know, and fewer and fewer of the 2024 people came to these meetings. So the ones who were there sort of, ah, were truly hearing from the neighborhoods in a town meeting style. There were a lot of new media strategies, but the old New England deliberative spirit uh, and old school techniques buttons still worked for you, right? Yes, Garrett. Yeah, I, I think what you're, you're talking about is it speaks to a lot of what separates Boston and Massachusetts from a lot of the other big cities. You, you, you brought up the point that there hasn't been any polling done in LA. They say they have 81, 82% support. And Boston is just a different place. Everybody, it's a hot, more, more educated, we're more engaged. Politics is a sport here. People pay attention. And the town meeting thing is something I never even, that never even crossed my mind. People are used to doing it. That is the most direct, are we going to vote to buy a new fire truck? Yes. <laughs> that type of, like, no, you know, like, like the best town meeting fights, by the way, are like, oh, they're the best. It's Bill Ricker. So, <laughs> it, is, it is the best form of democracy. It's the boss, right? All right. Um, I think we have time for two more questions. Um, yes, sir, you've been wanting to come in. Hi. Um, uh, <clears throat> just one quick question. Now, Marty Walsh pulled the plug. It was up to him entirely to pull the plug. Uh, how, how, how was that done? I, I, <laughs> I mean, he submitted the bid. Was, it, was his the final word? Uh. Once I, we saw that statement coming out, we both looked at each other like, oh, this is going south. Well, right. I, but I think it was, I think it was largely an about face. Yeah. Marty. Well, the, the uh, reason why, maneuvering, uh, excuse me. I went to your first meeting in, uh, in January, and I was so excited. I've never gotten involved with anything political. I'm not a public speaker. So... When I saw your committee, I said, oh, this is great. I went there. I went there with my brother, and I was stoked. I said, good, somebody's handling this. Because my, I was instantly against the Olympics, only because of past failures in other cities. And Boston had been developing nicely already. We didn't need any promises. They finally get the waterfront going. I, I've been involved in construction for 36 years. And so I was uh, at a meeting in town where Marty Walsh was there. And the whole, you know, the, uh, the Olympic Committee was there. Uh, Fish was speaking. He's really a brilliant speaker and very persuasive. Uh, and they had the girl in the wheelchair, the, the, the Olympian. And, you know, they had everybody, and there was just one, not one negative ever associated. And I just got the feeling, uh, with the call-in show, too, I was on the, the telephone one, and I just got the feeling they were fielding questions from people so they could put a spin on it in a later debate. So I got up to speak, and the guy right in front of me said what I was going to say, and he said it a lot more eloquently than I did. So I took it to Marty Walsh, and it's the way I felt, and I didn't say it really that strongly as I wanted to, but I let him know that you know a lot of people associate him with the, the Olympics. He was underhanded and sneaky putting in the bid. I mean, all of a sudden, we heard the Olympics was coming here, and you guys said, you know, you, you knew about it. it was the first, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. 
So I let him know that, you know, on the, the, the next uh, election cycle, I wouldn't be voting for him, you know, and people are going to remember this. And, uh, I disagree with you there. Because well, no incumbent yeah. mayor in Boston has lost since Jim Curley in 1949. Well, yeah, well. That's only because he pissed off John Hines. So I think Marty's just about safe. Yeah, exactly. When I right. made the statement, I wanted him to crumble, but he just sat there. He's a politician. And anyway, I, I felt I didn't uh, make my statement strong enough, and I couldn't if I'm going to include everybody, you know. Uh, I've got to keep it low-key. So I called my local representative, and uh, I, I spoke with her, and I let her know that, you know, cheap as everybody I know is not going to vote for Marty Walsh. And I spoke to another... All right, uh, so do you have a question? What's that? Do you have a question? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, do you ever <laughs> approach it from a political pressure? Like you take all the polls, like you said, uh, you know, two-thirds uh, uh, two -thirds of the taxpayers didn't want their taxes to go up as a result. Uh, so that was one thing. A uh, year before, we started thinking about how would this end? So like you're saying, you know, it ended with the person who had the most direct responsibility for you yeah. saying we're done. That was like the final end stage. Yeah. Um, but we had gamed out, and we had actually, and Kelly, Kelly gave us an incredible burst of energy when she came on. And I remember we were meeting at a Panera. Um, and <laughs> Great energy. A lot of, which, which was helped with the energy. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, how does this end? And so I think all three of us had different ideas of how this ends. How does this end? And so to your point, were we identifying the political pressure points, whether it's election day, whether it's people on Twitter, what were all the pressure points that you could apply? Um, and, you know, ballot initiative was mentioned, um, town meeting. There were a lot of different pressure points. Uh, and the IOC and USOC had designed the process to not allow those pressure points to be pushed. Um, so that is absolutely everything we were doing, even though, you know, we had different strategies at different times depending on what was happening. <coughs> was not necessarily about election day, but about how do you bring to bear resources and energy in a place that they're most efficient? Because we just didn't have the manpower to match them one to one. We had to go to a place where it could actually make the difference. Final question. Let's see. Sir, go back. I just want to, I, uh, anyway, um, I, what I want to do is I speak to the, their these people's courage. They've demonstrated again how articulate they are, how they're able to stay focused on the issues, not get into personalities. And my question to you is, what, when you started this, did you fear that you would never work in this town again? And secondly, now, do you think you will be able to find a place to work Great in question. this town again? Um, I am not afraid I won't work in this town again while well, I heard it frequently. Um, it's a matter of also just finding to bring a lot of energy to these. It matters, and you want to bring your passion to the right project and the right. Um, you give it your all because not for nothing we sort of give everything to it. So um, maybe the next project should be a little bit more of have a lifestyle. Um, so that would be quite a preparation for the last year, but um, it might be. I'm not too worried. It, it'll be okay. And also because I think there's 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 so many other things we could be doing. I mean, it's not. The Olympics is over. Let's put it in the rearview mirror and move on to some of the other um, issues that this community needs to address. Hey, we need a new mayor, so. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs>
Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of. On the record. I had a lot of anxiety about what this would mean for for my future um, because of the folks we were going up against. Um, but I think it always felt like we were we had the facts on our side and that we were engaged in this for the right reasons. And I think ultimately, I know I do, and I think these two do also, we ultimately have enough faith in Greater Boston and in Massachusetts that there are enough good, thoughtful people here who would make sure that things would work out okay and would, would move beyond whatever sort of pettiness was around the opposition to the bid. If we didn't feel that way about this place, we wouldn't choose to live here, and we wouldn't want to raise our families here and have our roots here. So um, it was that faith that allowed us to kind of get through in some very dark days in January and February when we're sitting there having, you know, not raised very much. Yeah, what? right. <laughs> right. I mean, when we had raised no money and we, um, you know, we're still up against uh, this juggernaut uh, and really not knowing sort of what was next or what the future would hold, we had that faith. Quick little story. Uh, very, uh, Larry Bird's very important to our family. And that day, Chris is like, you need to get ready. Tom Brady is going to be, he's going to endorse the Olympics one day. And I was like, oh, I can't. We just endorsed Trump today. So. That's wild. I was like, yeah. never right. Trump's higher in the polls. But, all right. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so um, why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, thank um, Garrett Quinn, uh, Kyle Kloss, Chris Dempsey, Liam Kerr, and Kelly Gossett for their participation. So thank all of you for coming. Please sign up for our uh, speaker series. Um, there's a list here everywhere. Thanks to uh, where are you? Dan Harsha yeah, for putting this together and Melissa Danello. And uh, there are some refreshments here. So I hope to see you again. Thank you.